This is Metrics and Chill, where you'll learn how leaders at growing companies use data to grow their business. In this episode, I got to chat with Benjamin Elias, VP of Marketing at Podia. We talked about the problems with just picking a number and setting a goal and trying to hit it, and some of the flaws or dangers inherent in that, why KPIs make amazing indicators of company health but terrible goals to aim at, how the only way to truly grow a company sustainably is to have a thorough understanding of how it works, and how to have a well-informed gut in marketing, making decisions based on qualitative and quantitative feedback. This was a really fun conversation, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Benjamin, thank you so much for coming on uh, Metrics and Chill, like I said to you when I reached out. Uh, and anyone who's listening, you heard Brendan mention uh, Benjamin's name a couple times in my interview with him on SEO and organic growth. So after like the third shout out in that interview to you, I reached out and I was like, I have to chat with you. Apparently you made a big impact on him. Um, so yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you about all things marketing today. I am glad that Brendan is, is a fan and shouting me out and that's very appreciated and glad that it led to us being here today. Um, so for, you know, let's start the, the, I guess the interview off with you are now congratulations on the new role of VP of marketing at Podia. Thank you. Um, what is Podia in like 30 seconds for anyone who's listening, who doesn't know Podia is a platform for creators to run every aspect of their creator business. So we make it possible for a creator to publish your website, your digital products like online courses or PDFs or downloads and that type of thing and host a community all in the same place. And what people really love about Podia is that it's incredibly easy to use and it has all of the pieces that you need. You don't have to like set up a website and then figure out how do you get people to actually pay you through the website or host a course or host a download or, or run a community in, in a different platform from that. It just puts everything in, in one place. It really is now that we, especially we have a free plan, it really is the absolute easiest way to get set up with a website on the internet. And then from there, start to get into the process of selling and grow as a creator. So if you check out our, even our homepage, podia.com, right at the, at the top of that page, it shows the typical path of a creator of start, build, grow, scale. We have creators in every one of those stages, and there are features that correspond to what you probably need at each stage of your growth. Awesome. Yeah. Um, and marketers should specifically go check it out besides the website tools. I think you all do. I was browsing it this morning and you do an incredible job summarizing the pains you solve, the differentiation, the value prop over and against other tools. The thing that made it click for me as like a quick browse, because obviously I'm chatting with people from all different companies, all different industries. Mm -hmm. So I'm just trying to get like a rough idea and your site made it very easy. There was one page in particular where I don't know if it was a customer story or just a way you laid it out, but basically it was like, here's the traditional way people have to do it. Like Gumroad for digital payments on products, PayPal to get this done. Yeah. And then like Squarespace to like host the website. Uh, and then like Thinkific or Teachable, you know, to like make the course materials, just get rid of all that in place of this one thing. And I was like, oh, okay, I get it. Like that's what, that's what that is. So that was super compelling. Yeah, we often find creators, when we talk to them, they have come into us and to any other tool because they had one specific problem. And that might be one of the things that we saw for, you might need a website, you might want to host a community, you might want to sell your first course. And then as soon as they're in and they are trying to expand to other stuff, they realize, oh, I can do it all in one place instead of how I used to have to do it. Uh, so it tends to be, it's not necessarily a category entry point that they want something all in one, but uh, they quickly realize 
as as they're building and as you are building uh that it is just much nicer to have it all work without having to stitch a bunch of stuff together yeah i may i just jotted down a question if there's time i'll get to at the end related to that because i'm mm-hmm. i had a couple interviews with people around different perspectives of marketing challenges when you've got a multifaceted tool but people are coming in for one use case so i'm yeah earmarking it in case there's time but yeah, yeah yeah would love to pick your brain on that um all right so today uh i, th- I feel like i've been saying this for like the past five episodes it's going to be a bit of a different episode so maybe at this point <laughs> the show is just morphing and changing um, but obviously metrics and chill typically, uh, you know, we, we tackle how someone, you know, why, a, a, a business metric was important, how it became front burner, the levers they pulled to try and improve it and the results that they saw from that increasingly what we're going to be trying to add, we're not going to stop that, but I think something I want to try and add additionally for listeners is, um, this idea of like, how do, how do smart marketing leaders and business leaders plan to grow? Um, because it's not always easy to uh, to resonate with a specific metric, but it is always helpful to learn how different leaders in the same roles as you are planning to grow. So I think this interview with Benjamin will be especially um, helpful for that. So today we're going to be talking about how you plan and set goals for your marketing team and specifically why like where where a lot of marketers are doing sort of the traditional marketing KPIs and saying, this is what we're aiming for and doing like a very mathematical reverse engineering approach. You don't do that way. And you see some cons or flaws or like potential dangers mm-hmm. with that approach. So I want to talk about some of those. So I guess we'll, we'll go in those in that order. Um, how do you think about from a high level setting goals at Podia? Yeah. That's starting with the easy questions, huh? Uh, <laughs> how do we think about setting goals? So, what I always think about is how does this business work? How does it grow? What are the dynamics of the business? Uh, what type of customer comes in? What does their buying process look like? How long do they stay with us? How quickly do they activate with us? What feature set do they use? These types of questions. And then ultimately, how does the business make money? and continue to reinvest in the product and the growth and thereby serve more people and help more people. And that to me is the most important thing when you're thinking about how do I set my growth goals or my goals in general, because you can say any number that you want as a target for something you want to hit. It doesn't mean that that number is possible and you can come up with something that is ultimately completely ridiculous or you could completely undershoot based on the real opportunity in the market uh, or for your product that you're not noticing at the moment. So I almost think it's it's helpful to start with the contrast of why don't I like to say we are going to hit this MQL number. I mean, we don't have a sales team, so that's we're pretty self-serving product-led, so that's not necessarily how we would do it. But why don't we have something like we want to have um, this MQL number, this number of leads, or this number of subscribers, or website visitors, or whatever the number is. And the answer to me, the short version of the answer to me, is that you can set that number and not understand what it takes to get to that number. 
setting the target mm. doesn't do anything to advance your understanding of how to reach the target. And that understanding is what will actually help you grow. So it's very limiting. It narrows your thinking a lot. It means that you're only going to look at things that directly affect this number that, because it's one number, is an imperfect representation of the growth of your business. Even something like revenue, which is, you know, that's that. if, if I had to pick one number, that's the one that I'm picking. Um, but even something like revenue does not necessarily perfectly correspond to the growth of the business long term because what time frame are you looking at? You could be looking at one month revenue, two months uh, but are you maybe not investing in the things that you need to be competitive in the market in 18 months and you'll you know, go the way of Blockbuster? So that's what I think about is any individual number is an imperfect representation of the thing you're trying to get it to represent. Is whatever website traffic a good representation of the success of your content? If you can even track that all the way down to revenue and you have some sort of attribution, whether that's first touch or last touch, uh, all, all attribution models are flawed and it's never going to fully represent the thing that you want it to. But treating it like it does will lead you to neglect other things that really do matter in the growth of your business. I have many other thoughts on that topic, but that's that's my immediate answer in contrast. So, so in contrast to that, uh, if we can understand how do we affect how does the business grow and therefore how can we affect the growth of the business we don't necessarily need to set numerical targets we should have numerical performance indicators and i'm saying i want to say the full statement key performance indicator and not kpi because the term originally is a performance indicator not a target but a a monitor that you're moving in the direction you think you're moving if we can understand a broad spectrum of these are the numbers that, that represent in some capacity stages of the customer journey or stages of monetization, we can start to influence them through our marketing, through our support practices, through the products uh, and features we develop, through our UX and those types of, of things. So the it sounds like I'm going to try and summarize this as as i'm understanding it and then you can kind of correct me or tell me where i'm where i'm wrong or miss, missing you mm -hmm. so the idea here effectively is um the way a lot of companies approach this is you know we want to grow um they'll start by throwing out a number like we want to grow by x percent or drive this many signups mm -hmm. or drive this much revenue this year now right at the beginning you're saying there's potential flaw there because that number could be way too high depending on where they're pulling it from or it could be way too low and maybe the market opportunity is a lot better it also might not be fully indicative or a holistic metric yeah. that summarizes all the things that are going to need to happen in order to make the company grow like what you actually want is healthy sustainable growth um and so that number let's just say you know someone's a like you guys a product-led SaaS uh company um so you know they basically say we want to drive this many signups or this many activations they throw out a number and the marketing gets handed that number and it's like okay what levers can we pull that are going to drive those signups i would even even dig into that a little bit more and say the number can be too high or too low but it, it can focus you in the wrong places and a specific example of that i have a company in mind but i'm not going to say the name uh, the a specific example of that would be a fast-growing sales-led organization 
that is setting aggressive monthly targets and they are are hustling, they're scrambling, they're working really hard and they're being fairly successful at hitting those targets with a sales-led motion. What they don't realize is that they could have 10x those results if they switch to a product-led motion. But because they're mm. tracking monthly, quarterly, even maybe annually, are they ever going to say, pump the brakes, we are not going to continue to invest in this sales-led motion, or rather we take that investment that we would have had there and we carve it out to do hard product work, packaging work, that results in a product-led motion in a freemium model? No, of course they're not. They're, they're not measured based in that way. And the way that they're measured is, is on the wrong time scale, is towards the wrong metric. So it will lead them to an approach that ultimately stunts growth, where if they ask the question, how does this business grow and start to look at that process more deeply, they might reach a different conclusion from what the model they have is. Yeah, I want, uh, there's two things this is making me think. One is, there was a good example, I was chatting with Tim Sulo like in, mm. in an interview about how they think about this at Ahrefs, and he even took it to the level of, um, he gave a couple examples of these of KPIs. I liked what you said, key performance indicators, if what they are is essentially leading indicators or just main signals that something is headed the right direction generally without like it being turned into a goal. But when they become a goal, he was saying, like he gave the example of if, if, you know, the CEO of Ahrefs told him, uh, I, you know, signups or, or, uh, you know, MQLs are your priority. He said, you can bet we would 10 X the amount of email capture forms across this website, because that's what we are incentivized to do. Exactly. And then another example he gave was, he said, um, oh, that even revenue, to your point, that they certain, there's these certain things that don't have like data behind them. They're not perfectly quantifiable that they want Ahrefs. It's important to them that Ahrefs is a trusted brand in the space for as long as it's in existence. And so even when it comes to revenue, Tim challenged and said, if there's a thing I think I can do that will drive revenue, but will compromise on some of our stated kind of ethos as a brander or what we say that we're about, is that okay? And the answer was, of course, no. So like one of those things he gave was they don't do any retargeting because of the way it just goes against their brand values to quote unquote, chase people around the internet with ads. They feel when you're ready for them, you know about them, you'll come back. And so they don't, they don't want to hurt that, but they're leaving money on the table. So those are a couple examples I think that I have heard of ways that these simple numerical goals are, are imperfect. It seems like, it seems like as you're talking, you take the mindset. And I, I think you reflect this well in your LinkedIn page. You take the mindset of an owner of the business. Like it seems like there's a certain either like thinking you need to have, like you act like you are in the C-suite or there's a certain proximity to the leaders of the company that you care to be invested. And I think maybe, do you think that's true? It seems like a lot of marketers, if they, if to them, you know, North Star metric is signups or revenue or whatever, it's just, I'm going to work with my team to pull levers to hit that number where you're almost talking about this whole different mindset state of like, hey, maybe like marketing can kind of keep going or like focus on 
you know, building affinity because we're not really ready for growth. And instead over here, we need to improve the product a little bit because this is what we're hearing about the product or something like that. Yeah, I have oh God, so many thoughts just popping up and each one could lead us down a rabbit hole. But yes, I one of my biggest pieces of advice to people in their careers as marketers is always be thinking, what is the most valuable thing I can do for the business? And that's a very powerful question if you really step back and take it at its face value. Most people, including myself, you know, when I was more entrenched in content marketing specifically, most people will give an answer to that question, or at least their first answer will be an answer that is tied very closely into the thing that they are an expert in. So if I, when I was a content marketing manager and you asked me, what's the most value you can contribute to the business? What's the most valuable thing you can do? I would have said, oh, more content marketing. Of course I would have said that, right? Right. But it becomes a very powerful question when you step back from that and you really look at it in the context of the business that you're in. And every business context, there you know there are overarching principles, but every context is a little bit different. It may be that the most valuable thing for the business right now is not content marketing, and my contribution should be to hunt for the most valuable thing in the business. Now there there are limits to this. There may be you know if the if the most valuable thing in the business to get really good at their targeting um, in paid channels, then I am not the person for you, and you should t uh, talk to someone else. Um, but you can you unlock a lot of power in a business when you are the person who is completely focused and relentlessly focused on that question because it's much easier to get people on board with you uh so you a are going to be focusing on the things that actually will drive results for the business and then b as long as that's your posture you're not being defensive about your stuff you can go help people on their stuff you're going to find that it's a lot easier for you to operate within an organization so it's a it's a dual thing it's like one well yeah you're focused on the things that will drive revenue uh and performance of the business and then Two, you are making it easier to to actually get what you want in a, in interpersonal interactions in that type of situation. Um, you had a, an example of from from Ahrefs of if we have MQLs as the target, we're going to have email forms up on all the sites. And there's a good story. So this is there's this idea of Goodhart's law. As soon as a measure becomes a target, it stops being a good measure. And it's a very it's a pithy statement. There's a ton of nuance that goes into it. I was just reading um, uh, a paper uh, categorizing the variations of Goodhart's law. Like there's a whole bunch of an academic literature. It's all interesting. Uh, but there's a story from the early days of Amazon, and Amazon is a very data driven company, and they're very intentional about how they use data um, and monitor the effects of using data. And there's a story from the early days of Amazon where they chose an input metric of new product page details pages so it's sort of a proxy for their inventory is how many different products can we have and how many can we add and they start measuring this number and they find for too long they're adding tons and tons of new product pages great right they're they're making this number go up but what they did not anticipate is that the individual managers of course are incentivized to do this they start putting up pages for products that are not in high demand. Mm. They just want to get up as many products as they can, but they still have to warehouse all these products. There's still costs associated with them. So now they have a lot of low demand products sitting in their warehouse, taking up inventory space that could have gone to higher demand things. So you, if you are 
optimizing for a number, even on the face of it, that seems to be a good representation of something that leads to revenue, you could lead to, in fact, almost definitely you will lead to some sort of unintended behavior. Uh, even that number, the nature of that individual metric will change over the life course of the business. How closely does it correspond to revenue? Now Amazon has a huge catalog. Is it still the most important thing for them as it was in you know the year 2000? I don't know. Right. Um, so you can incentivize the wrong behaviors and, and lead to some unexpected and potentially unpleasant outcomes. Amazon's a really nice example of this because, uh, and there's a whole book uh, working backwards by some of the guys who were there around this time uh, that is interesting to dig into. You hear some interesting stories from that. Uh, but Amazon's a good example because they actually look at a ton of numbers all the time. And it's by looking at this huge constellation of things that they become less beholden to the uh, to the incentive effects that come from choosing individual targets. And you, you sort of build your knowledge over time of, of how the numbers are going to uh, affect the things you care about, how well they represent the things you care about, and what unintentional behaviors they're going to lead to. And then that the, the third thing that came out of the, the story that you're telling about Ahrefs is this idea of like brand building and, and the challenges of revenue. And there's an interesting dynamic in tech where everyone feels, it feels like everyone is looking at first party data. So I want to know exactly what's happening with my users and I want to track what's happening with my ads and I want to know what correlates to performance in my business. And it's, all of that is useful and irreplaceable and it's first party. No one else has it. So of course you need to look at it. But there's also a huge literature on what works, what doesn't from a marketing perspective that extends back 70 plus years. And if you're trying to reinvent all of that from scratch, you're going to lead yourself in some uncomfortable directions. The, the clearest example is with attribution and direct attribution. There's a it is less maybe true now than it was five years ago, but I think it is still true. Uh, there is a a perception that brand building or media buys is not necessarily a good approach uh, or even when you're doing it that it's impossible to measure at all. And in fact, if you are taking, if you are, again, understanding this question of how do businesses grow, how does your business grow, how do consumers make decisions or even business consumers make decisions, there are clear vectors that you, or levers that you can pull with those activities. Um, and in fact, probably TV ad spend is still one of the most efficient types of spend that's out there. You see um, even now Facebook, Google, Amazon are all investing in this channel because it's pennies per per person that you reach if you can build the the awareness of the ca uh, category entry point for the product that you're trying to build it for. Um, there, this is a whole there's a whole like nerdy literature about this stuff, um, and you know people talk. Okay, well, when you look at econometrics versus attribution, then you start to see the impact of this in a different way. But of course, on, like digging into econometrics is a huge gate for most people, including myself. Uh, to like really understand the details of some of this stuff. So I, you know, I have to dig through what they have found and take it at the value I can find it at. But the, the broader point of, of going on this little tangent was we are biased towards the things that we can clearly measure, but it doesn't mean that those things are the most important things. So we can look at retargeting or, or 
paid spend or other things and say, this is how much money we made from it. But is it, is that what we made incrementally above what we would have made otherwise? Mm, What's, is it, is it outperforming what we would have made via longer term, a longer timeline investment in media buying that is specifically targeted category entry points? Those are hard questions to answer. And rather than even, I don't, I don't even think people are trying to answer them. I think for the most part, people don't ask the questions. Uh, and that is, that's, that's what I want to avoid. I want to make sure I am asking the questions because everything is in service of how does this business grow? And to only consider the information that's at my fingertips would be a disservice to how does this business grow? Hey, just a quick interruption. In past episodes, you've heard guests give advice like, The first step is just like actually measuring and monitoring, right? Which sounds very fundamental, but a lot of companies don't even do that, right? If you ask for like, hey, do you have a monthly kind of report of like what's happening in the funnel? It's like, oh, well, we have this over here and we have this over here and we have the traffic data and GA. So the first thing I think is like build out, you know, a presentation uh, that you're updating every single month. Or it's way easier if you have all this stuff being centralized somewhere and can look at it. And I promise that's completely unprompted. We try to book smart B2B leaders and learn how they're driving more predictable growth, and they end up sharing advice like that. And Databox makes it easy to do all of that and more. You can track your marketing, sales, revenue, and CS performance all in one place. It lets you build custom dashboards and view metrics from over 80 tools side by side. You can schedule PDF reports that automatically update your data in real time and send to your team or your clients. You can even set up custom Slack alerts that alert you when you hit your goals or when numbers spike or dip. If you want to try it totally free, just go to databox.com or click the link in the show notes. Okay, back to the episode. Yeah. Yeah, I think this makes a lot of sense. Um, th- I'll give one more example because I think this is helpful for listeners just to like, I think these examples flesh out some of what we talked about even before this call about like the dangers of KPIs leading you down the wrong directions. One of the one of the most relevant, a, a big company example to me, and I, I shared it with you, is like um, regardless of, of the, you know, the drama that was behind it all, but when when Elon acquired Twitter... Um, I was watching a programmer talk or you know, like did a tweet about how the former one of the one of the things was before they got involved at Twitter, they were really bugged by the web app. You know, when you pull up the website that if you scroll down and like past a few tweets, you'd get hit with this like content blocker that would invite you to sign up in order to keep reading. And his point was, well, this is stupid because they're not people aren't getting to see the value of Twitter. This isn't like this is just that. And the interesting thing it from at least outside appearances was at that you know f- for the life of the company mdao or uh monthly or what what is it uh monetizable daily active users i think um i was like want to say monthly or whatever um they were incentivized to drive that and so naturally well yeah let's put a like a thing that forces people to sign up to keep reading because that increases users but meanwhile other fast growing platforms like TikTok just let you browse indefinitely. Like when you go to like something or try and comment, obviously you need an account to do that. But on TikTok, you could spend all day, same as YouTube, you know, consuming content and getting the value out of it. And so recently, 
um, I know Elon talked about switching to, uh, I think it was like unregretted. This is a really interesting one. It was like unregretted minutes spent on the platform or something like that. Like, you know, how, how can they make the, the pot, the experience positive and life building such that you don't regret as opposed to like, you know, I hear a lot of people talk about like, Oh man, I, I watched a lot of TikTok and it was fun in the moment, but man, was that a huge waste of like 30 minutes and I got sucked down a rabbit hole. So, mm-hmm. um, so I, I think these things, it's, it's, it is really interesting how it's so easy and there's such a temptation to say, um, okay, this is the signups. This is the revenue we're to drive. What are the best bets we think we can get there? But it feels like, um, so I guess what I, I guess what I'd like to do is dig into, we can, you know, we're happy to use Databox as an example or Podia. Like how do, can you walk me through what is then doing it kind of like your way or a more, a more holistic way look like, like when you start the year, are you given revenue goals? Do you help set revenue goals? Are there like, are there signup goals at Podia or is, does it look more like saying, okay, I work with the C-suite as VP of marketing and I'm going to bring my list of ideas of what I think will grow the company overall. Mm. And we're just going to measure outputs of progression towards what we think will, will work. Like how walk me through like the right way, obviously, you know, there's, there's always right. nuance, but in your <laughs> mind, the right way to do this. Yeah. I, I want to back up just one second to something that you were talking about where it, Twitter is a good example of, you know, you, you start to choose a number and it narrows your thinking. So you put up the, the gate on people looking at Twitter and the web app and you unintentionally limit the potential network effect of just having more and more people looking at this stuff. Uh, so that's a, a good example of that, uh, and it's a good example of some of a lot of this goes back to W. Edwards Deming, way back in the early early days of American business, uh, who who did a lot of work in this area. He talks about total quality management, statistical process control. Those are the types of things that he's talking about. But a lot of what he talks about is this idea of how does how does measurement affect things. You have to measure things because you need to know how things are going, but also the act of measuring things affects how things are going. So it's a little bit of a catch-22. And uh, one of his contemporaries, Donald Wheeler, wrote a book, a book Understanding Variation. This is another thing that we don't tend to talk about all that often when we uh, talk about data is that there are natural fluctuations that happen that are within the expected realm of, of variation and don't mean anything. But Oftentimes, especially when a business looks at something maybe weekly, and they're like, why did this number go down this week? It just did. It's, uh, that's randomness. That's statistics. That's how that works. But he wrote this book, Understanding Variation. His version of, uh, or, or part of what he says about Goodhart's Law, is that when you're in this type of situation where you have a target, there are three things that a manager can do to try to hit this target. And the first thing they can do is improve the system. That's the dream. That's what you want the target to accomplish. They, they build the system. They make it better. The system is better able to reach the number that you wanted it to reach, and it operates better in all capacities. There are no trade-offs. I mean, good luck. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's possible to, to improve systems, of course, but equally likely or, or at least more likely if you're not coming from a perspective of how does this work is one of the other two things, which is you can distort the system or you can distort the data. So in this Twitter example, I think that's probably distorting the system. You've, you've introduced uh, 
a new thing into the system, which is these these sign up forms, or, or Tim Sula uh, saying the same thing about okay, we want MQLs, we're going to put forms everywhere on the site. You've distorted the system to reach this number better. Is the system operating better? I, I think we would probably say it's not. Uh, so it's a useful way to think. Uh, how can I prevent these distortions from happening? Uh, one way you can do it is by not tying things too closely to individual KPIs, uh, and then there are other ways that you can do it. Uh, there's there's a um, I'm trying to remember his name. It's a guy <laughs> uh, who who we'll Google it afterwards. Yeah, I'll Google it after. It's like Joiner, I think. I can't remember his first name, but Joiner um, has this list of well, how can you how can you avoid these problems? You can make it difficult to distort the system. You can make it difficult to distort the data, or you can have enough slack in the system, that it's not all high pressure all the time so that people actually have the necessary time and space to understand how the system works and then start to improve it. In the example of a sales-led org earlier, if you have a sales-driven model that is fighting to hit its targets every month and you are tying people very closely to compensation, very closely to quota and all that type of stuff, there's no slack in that system. There's there's no mm. ability for someone to take any time away from try, from doing everything they can to hit this target to actually try to improve the system. And, and you are going to peter out at some point because, you know, sales fails linearly, right? You, you can add X number of salespeople, you can try to add X pipeline, but it gets harder to grow uh, 60% every year or whatever your number is. Um, so that I wanted to just circle back on that that aspect of it before digging into this other question of what should we do? <laughs> yeah, so as a quick so as a quick response before we go there, this is a show of rabbit trails, so it's, it's okay. I feel like listeners are aware of this by now, and if you're not, <laughs> welcome. Um, yeah, so just so as a summary, so that would be an, like so that's an example in in the sales led example you're saying Slack might look like giving bandwidth and space that they don't feel like they're going to lose income like personal income that they need to provide for families or whatever um or won't be reprimanded for missing targets which allows to to have space and bandwidth to think about, hey, what if people could do this themselves? Or, hey, we're doing a lot of these manual steps when we onboard. I think these five could be automated and maybe that's one step toward a more product-led like growth movement or something like that. So this would be this example of improving the system. Mm -hmm. What you would do is step back and say, what would be the ideal? And it's like, the, well, the ideal would be, you know, that people could gut in and understand this all themselves. Okay, well then what's the, what are the hindrances to them onboarding themselves or understanding this? Or what are they most talking to sales about? How can we offload some of mm -hmm. that? What, like, why do you, yeah, never mind. I'm going to, I need to, uh, I want to go, <laughs> I want to go to how you do it. I've got so many questions around this route, but I think I like, I like this framework a lot because this is something I've seen at a lot of companies is like, I feel like sometimes there's been like, I know I've experienced and I feel like a lot of marketers experience frustration because the thing you're given to do doesn't feel like you've been given the root issue to fix and right. you can see the root issue and you're like, 
uh, it feels like it, it even contributes to a sense of like meaningless. Cause you feel like you're like Sisyphus rolling the boulder up the hill. You're like, well, this is going to do like for a quarter, but this isn't like what customers are articulating or what the problem, you know, mm. you can look at a lot of companies as examples of this, where you feel like it feels like it can lead to a lack of hope or optimism or a sense of purposelessness to your role because you feel like the, the thing that actually needs to change isn't being changed. Instead, we're kind of just glossing over and doing more of what's like yeah. not permanently working or, or long-term working. It, it creates a ton of problems for businesses. It does what you're describing. It does this thing of we never actually work on the, the fundamental problems. There are other, I think, downstream effects of some of these things. Like, you know, a lot of SaaS companies will measure channel splits. So how much revenue is coming from individual channels. But there are problems with that in that you probably are creating incentives for teams to not work together. Because if individual teams are focused on different channels, if I go to you and ask for help on something, anything I ask for help on is taking away from your number mm. that you're trying to hit. Um, and those incentives are are tightly wound into the way that we do things or the, the way that people often do things. So it's very hard to unravel them, but they're there and they affect how businesses work. And, and, you know, I try to do as much as I can to be understanding how things work and how we are making progress towards making them work better without creating a lot of these other problems unintentionally. So we can talk about, I guess that now is <laughs> how do we, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so say, save us, <laughs> save us, uh, save listeners propose. I know, I know like, obviously this isn't going to be perfect and I'm, I'm half joking, but I think you, you are, re- you're someone who's really thoughtful about these things. And this is like, these are struggles that I think are really root causes of a lot of problems at companies and, um, yeah. So what does it look like in your mind? Again, you can pick Podia. You could also, if it's easier to lay it out, like in theory, you could pick like a, mm. an example, like just a makeup SaaS company. But I'm curious, like what it, it, for marketing leaders or business leaders, what are, what are the steps they're taking? What does it look like to drive this meaningfully? If there's it, all these inherent dangers in saying, just picking a number aiming at that and trying to pull levers to aim at that. There's all yeah. these, we've talked about, you know, all these potential problems. What's, what is it maybe a more holistic way to drive as you keep referring to business growth, not just like growth of this one number. Yeah. So I'm not going to have a perfect answer. I, I hate to spoil it ahead of time, uh, but spoiler, I think I don't have a perfect answer. It, the, the biggest takeaway from everything that I, the more I dig into this, the more I appreciate being, really data-driven is very hard. And that is, I think, the number one takeaway is to appreciate how difficult it is because as soon as you're starting to appreciate the difficulties, you can start to try to navigate them and avoid them and at least ask the questions. But I would always start from, and I I started at at Podia um, something like 18 months ago. And just now we're starting to to really get even more granular with, with how we are are tracking things from a data and numbers perspective and understand what numbers represent what aspects of the customer journey or growth of the company and that type of thing. Um, we've had numbers in the past. I'll go through some of the process. Uh, but it all starts from how does this business grow? How does this actually work? 
how does how do people in our market behave? What do they look for? What are their category entry points? How do they get recommendations? How do they hear about us or competitors? What does their buying process look like? And some of that we can start to we the the back half of that, like how do they interact with our product? What do things actually look like once they land on our site? That we can look at via our first party data. But the first half of it, we have to actually go to the customer and talk to them. So the very first thing that I did, I put together a, a research doc on my, I think it was actually my second day. So it might have been my, the second thing that I did after giving, you know, my, my social security number to HR. Um, <laughs> the second thing that I did uh, when I started at Podia was put together a, a customer research plan and start interviewing customers. And there is a a lot of information out there about how to do customer interviews. I'll describe briefly the process that I used, but um, yeah, I, I think you have to do a bunch of research on your own to actually dig into this. But the the process that I used is I, um, for this round, I wanted to interview people who were successful in the platform. So I, I carved out a segment of people who had signed up relatively recently because I wanted to make sure that they remembered what their their process was like and um, that I was getting real answers about things that are still sharp in their memory and that had already had a, a handful of sales, at least across the threshold of sales. I email a huge group of those people and I, I invite them to schedule my Calendly in exchange for a gift card. And I actually go and I, I talk to those people. And in those calls, what I tried to do was construct a timeline. When did you start as a creator? Okay, what was going on in your life around that time? They'll give me a little bit of a story anytime they mention some new milestone. So, okay, well, I started because uh, uh, in 2017, and I, um, I should I give a real example? Uh, I started in 2017, and the thing I started was I started my YouTube channel. I won't give the, the thing that was going on in their life, but um, I started my YouTube channel, and it started to grow pretty quickly. Uh, and then people had started started reaching out to me and asking me if I could coach them. And I was like, oh, I don't know. I guess I can coach them. And uh, after a few, after maybe six months, then I made a course. But they tend to not present things as linearly as that. They'll be like, oh, I made my YouTube channel and it blew up. And then you know later I did courses. Oh, and I did coaching at some point. So I just have to ask them to put it on the timeline pretty more clearly. And then what was going on around the time that happened? So I start to understand how does this person work in their day-to-day life and what milestones indicate that they might start looking for a platform. Someone asks them for coaching. Is that the moment that they're going to start looking for or are they going to do that on Zoom? Someone, uh, or they, they, they're doing too much coaching and now they want to have some sort of asynchronous product like a course or a digital download or, some, or PDF checklist book, something like that. Is that the moment? Is that their category entry point that they're getting too many requests and they're feeling overwhelmed? If I can start to understand why are people um, starting to enter a purchase decision, what's going on before and after that, I can start to understand how I reach them in my marketing. Um, I did this whole process. I went through all the interview transcripts. I start to pull out phrases and tag them with things about what they're about. And then I can go through the, and each, each person and see what's their distribution of the, the tags for each phrase. It's a, it's a very structured research process. Um, if I can recommend a book to people that gives a sense of how do you actually go through a transcript, 
I would say it's The Coding Manual for Qualitative Researchers by Johnny Saldana. Um, there are lots, there's lots of stuff out there, but that's a really good overview. Um, that, that comes from some of my academic background in, in psychology and, and sociology research. But you learn so much by doing this type of structured research process, and that's sort of the first half. And uh, what really came out of this research is that we needed to have a freemium model we saw that we were primarily getting people from our surveys in our app uh, when we asked, what did you sign, what's the number one feature you sign up for, um, that type of question. We would primarily get people who were coming for online courses, but in this round of interviews and other research that we did, people weren't starting to make online courses for at least two years into their time being a creator. So that's two years that they're doing other stuff that they could go to another platform for. What if we were there right at the beginning for them to put up their first product or run a coaching session or um, host their w- a simple website that they can put up in an afternoon. That's, that's what started to lead us towards that decision. And there was a lot of other work that went into this pricing and packaging decision, including you know a long uh, uh, dev cycle to actually build everything. But that was what kicked off those conversations is really understanding how that customer journey works. Okay, so then we, we go through that process. We actually just recently did another round of interviews with another like 30 or so creators. Did a similar structured research process to understand why do people upgrade off of free? What are the key features they look for? Why do they come to us in the first place? And we start to see now that we're free, the dynamics of the business change. So actually, um, we now attract more people who are coming to us instead of Patreon because our community feature is free and they, they like that they can upgrade to get more stuff and remove transaction fees. We get more people coming to us just for a website. That's stuff that didn't happen before because, you know, 40 bucks a month is hard to pay for a website when you're starting out, but free is a great price for a website. And, oh, I can sell stuff through it later. So we, we see the dynamics of things change as we go through this. All of this is still qualitative research. We actually just yesterday, as we're recording, wrapped up a, a survey that follows up on a lot of these things. So qualitative research with interviews is great because you can get really deep into the topics, but then you pull out the things that they say, the things that you hear more, most frequently, and you have to actually ask people to, uh, exactly what you ask is, depends, but you need to ask people to respond to it or rank its importance or dig into it more and have quantify it somehow with a larger audience. So we, you know, we get a thousand people to respond to the survey. Now we have a better sample of our customer base um, that is telling us how important are these various things. And we start to look at it that way. Um, surveying is like you can put up in-app surveys very easily. There are a lot of tools for that. Um, you don't need amazingly huge samples, especially if you don't have that many customers. You can learn a lot from a well-constructed survey that is starting from the thing that you want to find out versus just asking whatever questions come to mind. Um, and through all of this, we've got numbers that we look at, right? Like we've got the top level numbers that a lot of companies look at. Uh, we of course know our, our user counts of free and paying users before that trials. We of course know things like website traffic and we have, you know, we have, um, we've cohorted retention for free users. We have revenue retention churn, all of this kind of stuff. And we can monitor all of that. And we do, I mean, it's the first thing I look at every morning because, uh, of course I, I, just want to know um, whether or not that's the thing I should do. I can't stop myself. Um, <laughs> but um, we have all those numbers. Now, at, as we are have built this fuller understanding of what people want from the business and we have 
seven months of information uh, from launching freemium and seeing how that starts to play out and seeing how our hypotheses are playing out we are we are increasingly digging in on some of the the harder to understand things like how do you measure product activation in a context where your product can do so many things where someone could come in because they want to sell a pdf because they want to put up a course because they want to put up a website because they want to host a community even when they do a course they could want to do three to four different kinds of courses um, a lot of people, some of the simple stuff or stuff that comes to mind first is imperfect because, um, you know, if someone publishes a course on the platform. Of course we can track that and we can trigger based on it in our life cycle. And we do those things. Um, is it an indicator that they're going to be successful or is it an indicator that they're just trying it out? Um, there are things that, so we have to get more into the weeds and start to build this understanding of, you know, this, this famous thing that people talk about, like, oh, Facebook, if you add seven friends in 10 days, that indicates you're going to be successful. Um, and those are, those are data questions and statistical questions. And we have, we're working on that in more depth, but broadly we want to understand the picture of the business. And a lot of this qualitative research started to build that picture of the business. Now a lot of the quantitative stuff that we've had and are developing further to be more sophisticated, we're understanding the picture of the business. It's never going to boil down to one number. Then the single number just does not capture enough of what's actually happening. Instead, we look at some numbers that indicate the overall health of the business. Are things tanking? Do we need to fix something quickly? Is there a huge problem? And we look at numbers that indicate the impact that we're having towards our objectives of activating new users or expanding or retaining or, um, or acquiring new users, that type of thing. And we have, we, I was just in a leadership meeting the other day where we were talking about this challenge and also important that it's happening at the executive leadership level and, you know, um, that we're having a, an in-depth conversation about exactly what we're talking about now of what are the downstream effects of tracking different metrics, how well do re did some numbers represent what we're actually trying to measure. But we'll talk about numbers like, all right, let's identify the thresholds of of products published or times hitting the publish button on the website or... Um, different settings that people interact with or connecting and integration or uh, week two uh, retention on free users. And, and we start to build this full picture of the business where how many of these things correlate? Well, we don't know yet. We have to do the, actually, the actual analysis on that. Um, and even a, a, you know, a correlation to free to paid upgrade in a, in a narrow window might not capture what happens eight, two years from now which is our original hypothesis that it takes about that long for someone to launch a course. Um, so we're, we're very aware of what are the limitations of the numbers that we're tracking and how can we use data and numbers to understand what's happening and start to make that some of the changes that improve how the business grows without becoming beholden to what they say to us on a week or month long basis as a long answer. And again, it's an imperfect one, but it's something that we're working on. It's something that I always want to be working on in any role that I'm in. And it's you know, what Amazon did in that book that I uh, mentioned working backwards has a lot of detail on that. And it, I think is what leads to a, a more successful business that grows according to what is actually happening 
instead of what we wish was happening. I love this example. Um, this is incredibly helpful. I want to tailor any remaining follow-up questions based on your schedule. Cause I didn't check with you beforehand. Do you have a hard out coming up here at the hour no, or, okay, I'll on. still be mindful of your time, but, um, <laughs> but this is, this is really, really, uh, helpful. And I think interesting. And I think what, I think what's intriguing to me about this interview is this is getting at like, there are a lot of tutorials or examples of how to use a spreadsheet to mathematically like set goals. Yeah. But this is getting at all these kind of impossible to answer things like this is like a framework to apply almost like to your business to think about like, are you doing the right things and how you should be focusing your time? Like, you know, anyone can go out and learn like, here's a revenue goal, work backwards. Like, okay, what's the product cost? How many sales or signups do you need to hit that revenue goal? Go out and get that with marketing. And I think enough at bats people can, that's how a lot of, I see a lot of organizations work. This feels like it's getting at like the foundational issues to me. So, um, one of my first thoughts this is leading to is, uh, I'll summarize what it makes me think. And you tell me if you think that's a fair summary of what you're saying <laughs> or how you, how you all are approaching growth there. So it sound it almost sounds like growing, I won't even say setting goals, but growing the business for you is like a what's best next methodology of qualitative and quantitative. In other words, you want to grow the company, not just move the needle. I mean, I guess you said like you'd be willing to move the needle on a revenue number, but even that has caveats. So other than right. revenue, you don't just want to pick a number and move the needle on it. You want to grow the business. So what you will do is you get in and you understand what are the reasons, what are the pains our customers are feeling? Who are our best customers? Why are they using the product? How much are we charging? You're probably digging into like, what's our profit margin? Like, why don't we charge more? Why don't we charge less? Like kind of like a question, everything, understand what's gotten the business to here and how it works. And then you're saying, then you're doing qualitative research. Some may be customers, some may, uh, let's just call that qualitative research. Some is on the business, some is on the customers, but you're basically mm -hmm. understanding, give me a picture of the health of this company and where it's at. And what you're doing then, it sounds like is coming away with like, okay, if I, it, you know, if, uh, if I was pressed to offer it up, I would say these are the next three things I'd advise this business to do to grow holistically. And then you are taking action to, to do those things. And the numbers you're using are key performance indicators in the truest sense of like, mm -hmm. we're going to measure output of like those things getting done or like leading indicators of like, are these things working? So for example, you do this, you do this qualitative research, you decide I need to dig into these customer stories. This leads to the innovation. Like this doesn't lead to like a signup goal. This leads to like an innovation of a new product. You are measuring quantitatively the steps toward like, okay, we actually have to have output goals mm -hmm. and like within our project management software, like accomplish this. And then when it's done, we'll look at the postmortem of like the effects of it. And then you're doing it all over again, because now like that there's freemium model. Now there's new use cases for your product mm -hmm. and people are at different stages. So do you feel like some are, 
I'm sure it's too simplistic, but do you feel like summarizing it as like a at at multi at wh- whether it's quarterly or annual, whatever touch points, you're saying where's this business at? What are what's the health of it? How is it growing? And then what's best next? What does it need next to grow? And what can marketing make an impact on? And then we will measure our output efforts of movement toward that that mm. good. Yeah, uh, the, the the Amazon example again from the book is they use a weekly business review and they have a whole bunch of numbers that are in that process. And sometimes they won't talk about them that much. Sometimes they'll dig in on them more. Depends on on the nature of the week. Um, but uh, I would almost I've described it one way and I'll almost flip it a little bit. Uh, the typical way that people think about things is okay. We, let's have a number that represents activation and try to improve that number. And how I would prefer to think about it is if I have improved activation, I should see an impact across these other numbers. It's never going to only affect one thing, right? If I have improved activation for Podia, well, I should see more people publishing products and I should see more communities being started. I should see less drop-off. I should see better retention after the first week. All of that should happen. If I just said I want to improve the number of new free users who are publishing products, I'm probably driving behavior in some weird ways. Uh, I might lead to a weird situation where, uh, in the way that Amazon did, where they just had people publishing things that had another, a different cost. It's probably true that for our free users, and part of our hypothesis is that a lot of them are not ready to publish a product yet, so that doesn't make a whole lot of sense for them. But going the other way, it works. Okay, activation improved. Yeah, more, some more people publish products because it was easier to do it, um, or we were more able to segment the people who are ready to do it, or some other UX change. Um, I should also see that someone is more likely to come back in their second week. I should also see that the people who are doing community are more likely to do community, or I don't know, you could conceptualize all sorts of things. Maybe the websites on average have more pages. Maybe we actually see more visits going to uh, free users' websites on average for whatever reason. Um, there, and that number also could be influenced by a lot of different stuff. Uh, every number can be sort of influenced by different things and is representative of a different aspect of that process. So if I only look at one, I capture a lot of noise along with the signal that I actually want. But if I'm thinking about what's the signal and I can identify the signal across a range of things, I'm going to get, I can filter out what the noise is. Yeah, this, so in the example here you gave of Podia was, you know, publishing um, a course or something like that. This could be like Amazon publishing product pages, like the typical way people would do this if they were at Podia would be to say, oh, we've learned, like we looked at all, you know, customers that retain and pay us revenue for longer than six months on average publish three courses. Let's get them to publish three courses on Podia. Yeah. And the problem is by you looking at it holistically, you're saying, well, hold on a minute. If they, if they're not ready, like there's a ton of assumptions baked into that number because totally. all those people, you you may have filtered them by like four firmographic things, but the reality is there's all these qualitative things going on with those customers that made them successful as well. And on the flip side, if the wrong fit person publishes three courses and sees nothing, it might lead them to like give up quicker or churn faster or feel like Podia isn't worth the money. It doesn't work for me. It didn't drive me any sales or anything like that. So you are looking at, um, 
yeah, this, this, this makes a ton of sense. I feel like there's so many, like, um, I feel like there's so many directions we can take it, but, um, I'll, I'll, I want to wrap up with a couple, if you're willing, just like I've got two, we'll do like quick round questions. This is really, this has been a great, uh, meaty episode and I feel like maybe we need to have you back. Maybe we'll take some follow-up questions on LinkedIn and see if you can like pop in and answer some around this idea of, of holistic goal setting. But, um, all right. So we'll go and do a, a couple quick round questions. Just a fun one. I'm getting in my mind, the more that you're talking, like this idea of a base camp esque Ahrefs esque company that sort of built their brand or prides themselves on not measuring very much for all the problems they've, they've articulated all the problems that you, that you have and are just seemingly driven by like a, a strong belief. Like the leaders have a strong belief. The marketing team has a strong belief around like they just want to, they maybe built the product to solve their own pain, which maybe is an advantage. And they just kind of feel like they know the next right steps to take. They kind of like are listening to customers and they're just taking the next best step that they can think. And they kind of ignore a lot of the data and problems associated with it versus the extremely data-driven company that maybe is misattributing things in marketing. They are incentivizing bad behavior through their KPIs. Both seem like kind of extremes. Do you feel like one will end up being healthier than another? Or like, what, what do you think about like those two ends and like where yeah. is maybe more rightly right to land? That's interesting. So, so where I land in there is, is measure a lot, uh, and acknowledge all of the problems with measurement so that you are aware of the limitations of what you're measuring and can build this like full constellation and full picture of what the business is. But I definitely would not say don't measure. Um, and I would say, honestly, probably measure a lot more uh, and and more nuanced and more qualitative and drawing from things from from bodies of research that are not first party data, that type of thing. If I think about the two, those two ends of the spectrum that you described, I would guess and I'm I'm now speaking off the cuff and I've not considered this question all that deeply, but I would guess that the determining factor in the success of those businesses is going to be the market they operate in. Uh, so, you know, you can have a base camp or an HRFs that operate in base camps case. They came to this, this market very early. They had very friendly pricing for small businesses and they acquired a very large user base in HRFs case. They did not necessarily come as the earliest in the market. I think that was probably Moz, uh, or at least Moz was the giant early on, but, um, through, a combination of product innovation and, and probably some some stumbles and trips on Mazda's part, uh, they were able to establish themselves as a really strong leader in a market that just really just does not have that many giant tools. Um, in that context, I think we're seeing some survivorship bias potentially. Like your market can drive a lot of performance of the business, even if you are not doing a lot of great things from a business perspective. I mean, I'm mm. not saying anything about what Basecamp or Ahrefs are doing specifically, but but um, the the market is the the number one I'd say success factor in what a business is, um, and that's going to be true for these businesses that want to track anything. That's going to be true on the other end also. Where yeah, if they're in a good market, then trying to optimize this way, they could almost there's almost no way they wouldn't grow optimizing for it. But there's a limit, and 
they'll start to burn out uh, their teams or just their goal setting processes, or, or they'll have a lot of tech debt or other types of organizational debt because they are not investing in the things that are required to overcome uh, the larger humps that happen when you stop growing at, you know, you, you double the first year, you grow 80% the second year, you grow 60% the third year, but it gets harder and harder to do that as your numbers gets bigger, get bigger if you're not investing in things that can lead to exponential growth, if you're only investing in things that lead to linear growth. Um, I think those businesses can be very successful, and there are certainly examples of businesses that have grown to substantial size doing that type of thing, but I would tie it back to the market in, in both cases. Yeah, I think I agree. I like the analysis. I like the I like the summary of measuring everything but being slow to make assumptions or set goals based off all of it. Um, yeah. It feels like a lot of what you're describing in this whole interview is having a strong awareness of all the data points just so that even like over time you may notice patterns. Like you gave the activation example. If you are measuring 20 different data points at, you know, for your SAS tool and you do an experiment to drive activations, you may see all these numbers move in a certain way. And then you do it again. You're like, oh, there's a repeatable habit here. It does seem that this is the effects of this thing, but that's different than saying like, this is the number that we absolutely need to like base everything off and is yeah. like the final source of truth. Yeah. And if you are going to do like, if we're talking experiments, like AB testing, like you need a, a number that you measure just from the statistics perspective, like you have to have a number that you're optimizing for. Um, the key would be, you're not going to run a string of of tests, all optimizing for that same number. Um, you know, you could probably improve free to pay conversion rate by, by slapping plan selection as your very first thing that you see when you interact with the product. What are the downstream effects of that? Maybe it's a good idea. Maybe it's not a good idea. Uh, it it probably depends on your product, your customer, and your market. Um, but there there may be other like maybe people leave, bounce right away, right? Yes, more people converted, but a ton of free people just don't make it through the process at all. And you really want to know that if you're gonna um, have a successful freemium model. Yeah. All right. Second and last uh, short question. Short-ish, right? <laughs> short-ish, yeah, short-ish. How do you think about the balance of, this is something I've been wrestling a lot lately with, the balance of a strong gut feeling, um, you know, good. There are, there are marketers that seem to have very good awareness, like qualitative awareness, I'll say like they seem to have mm -hmm. a good sense. There's no data to it, but they've got a good pulse on their intuition of where the market is headed, what their customers need. Again, a lot of qualitative, maybe conversations with customers that aren't boiled down to just like cold mm -hmm. data or numbers. They seem to just have a strong sense of like being able to reverse engineer human behavior. Like, well, this is this is how they seem to buy. This is how I buy. When I come to a website, this is what I look for. Like you can get, I believe you can get pretty far on that. Data obviously is super important in a lot of cases. Um, at least, you know, most people feel that you're making the case for that. What is the dance or balance between that? You know, like you're doing all this research at Podia. Mm. You are proposing a freemium product, but like, let's say the emphasis is on 
you know, you decide, okay, we, we think things are at a good place and what's best next is to try and grow more awareness and prompt more signups of the, of the product. Like what's the dance look like? What's the balance there in your mind between leveraging data of where, you know, past attribution says people come from successfully, what kind of things you should show them when you get in front of them, et cetera, et cetera, versus like just this pure, like, like just a, a skilled intuition, if that makes sense, or maybe a different, uh, a more pithy way of saying it is like, what's the art versus algebra? Yeah, it, that's, that's a good uh, thing to end on because it's, it's where I wanted to take it also. Uh, and my two sort of responses are the first is that data does not actually tell you what to do. Uh, data tells you maybe where to look, where to focus, how you're doing, but it's not going to come up with your marketing campaign for you. And that's where a lot of the creativity still comes into play, where you are, are taking all of these pieces from all those various areas of the business and you're trying to figure out how to combine them in a way that, that creates something compelling, that accomplishes what you need it to accomplish. And there will always be a place for create, uh, creativity in marketing, and, and I value that a lot. Um, I think you also see you know, there are these people who are extremely creative and come up with very cool things, and... Uh, they don't necessarily, sometimes they can be very successful without going into the data side of things because their creativity was able to get the uh, more attention on the thing and, and the thing itself was still close enough to driving what, the things that it needed to drive that it can have an effect as a result of that. Uh, so we, we think about that a lot at Podia is how can we combine the threads of these various ideas into something that is larger than the sum of its parts. As an example of a campaign that we have coming up before too long, uh, we, so this year we're do, doing uh, creator fellowships. We're giving away money every single month. And we identified that creators are pretty much self-funded, that they are paying for everything out of their own pocket, that a couple thousand dollars is a huge amount of money for creators and is a huge amount of money for us to give away. And that's a great campaign on our end because that's much less expensive than putting that money into Google ads and, and, you know, just shipping it off to, to, um, California, I guess. Um, <laughs> uh, f for an upcoming campaign, we are tying submission to win this fellowship into sending us user generated content. So we've identified that creators pay very close attention to what other creators are doing. They always want to know. They always, uh, mm. when they see an example of something, how did you do this? Oh, I'm trying to do this. How have you approached it? Right? It, they, that's how they want to get information. A lot of the conversations happen in private communities. They happen in our private community and others, that type of thing. So we're going to collect advice from creators for, uh, from creators for creators. We already have hundreds of pieces of this from past fellowships, but we're going to scale up and have more of them. Um, some of them are videos. Some of them are written. Some of them are answers to specific questions like, what do you wish you had done differently? That type of thing. We're going to collect all that information as entry into the $2,000 fellowship. We'll then collect it into our newsletter. Uh, we'll, we'll start a separate uh, separate from our major marketing emails, a separate subscribable newsletter where we collect, this is what the pitch is. You get advice from creators every week uh, on our website. We'll have a library of all this stuff that's tagged and filterable, and it has the creator's face and name on it. Anytime they get featured in a newsletter, we will 
uh, it, it feeds all of our social content. We would reach out to the creators specifically, which will, of course, get them excited about it. All that is low lift. We get to establish this newsletter that creates more email inventory for us, enables, you know, we can do link swaps or promote some of our other content, and we don't have to, like, write the content every week for it. We also collect all of this user-generated content that we repurpose in the rest of our content as examples that we start to have in the courses that we're making for Podia. Um, the fellowship itself is a huge thing. We get over a thousand applicants to spend 60 minutes filling out an application in past instances. And that's sort of compelling. Like, oh, you're going to email over a hundred thousand people and over a thousand of them are going to take an extremely in-depth action. seems like something you get a sponsor for. And that's something that we're going to do. We're working when we actually have, we have partnerships set up where the prize money will come from a sponsor and they will that gets us some partnerships with those companies so we've layered all of these things into one campaign and it's it's uh understanding what content do we need for ourselves what do our creators want um we want to have this subscribable thing we want to have this additional space to promote stuff we want these relationships with companies we want to be able to use the ugc elsewhere we want you know a, a group of creators that's already interacting with podius that if we want customer stories or reviews or example sites or any of that kind of stuff, um, we have that on tap. And this one campaign that honestly, you know, that's work. It's it, I don't want to diminish the value of what the team is doing, but compared to its impact, it's not that much work. Um, th that type of creativity is is irreplaceable, and I'm sure people do more creative things than that, but that's the example that's on my mind because I've been thinking about it a lot as we work on it. Um, and that type of creativity, the data is never going to tell you to do that exact thing. Um, so that creativity is still very important. When it comes to thinking about your gut, um, I believe in a well-informed gut. Okay, so, I like this. Gut health. Yeah. So gut health, yes. This is, this is my take on gut health. I am not a nutritionist, but maybe I'm a marketing nutritionist. You know? <laughs> um, I believe in a well-informed gut, which means your gut is really your brain making connections behind the scenes and uh, you know i have a background in psych that's that's what a lot of that research suggests is um that if you can fill up your gut with a healthy diet of data and qualitative information it's going to tell you what you should be doing and some people have a, a stronger gut just because they happen to pay attention to some things more you give the example of when i check out online i do this they notice online checkout things and and it jumps out to them when they see something that, that would break their experience as a result of that. Uh, so I think if you are taking this nuanced approach to understanding data and you're acknowledging what the limitations are, it's only ever going to help your gut instincts about things because you can start to mesh it more like, okay, well, the numbers say this and my conversations with people say this. Where some people who are who who like to rely on their guts a lot run into challenges is when when people will challenge them with the numbers. Well, the numbers say this, mm. so your guts must be wrong. And those people are also wrong. They're avoiding the qualitative stuff. But that tension is like, oh, my gut says this because it's paying attention to some of these qualitative things. But because I haven't gone through a, I haven't you know I don't have a rigorous research process. I haven't done this stuff. It's very hard for me in those conversations to argue with that person. So. I believe in a well-informed gut because you will have 
even if your gut comes up with ideas that you you can't trace exactly to the conversation that created the idea or the data point or whatever, you at least have some store of information that you can go back to. And in an organization that is building this full picture of the business, you're not ever going to have those those same, I don't know about ever, but you're less likely to have those those confrontational things like the number says this, so your gut is wrong, or the customer says this, so your number is wrong. Um, you're trying to understand what's happening and everything is just another uh, star in that constellation. I think that's a great way to end it and a great summary. I like it's making me think of a system of checks and balances. I'm definitely skew more towards the gut uh, observe human behavior approach. I think that's often a place to find a strong, find strong hypothesis or, or starting points. But data is either going to, even if you think you're right, it's at least going to be a check of like, Hey, double check your thinking on this. Cause the data is not aligning and you'll meditate on why it might not be aligning and it will force you to form, um, arguments for your reasoning or whatever. It's, it's only going to make you sharper or in some cases it will prevent you from being wrong. Cause you're not, or yeah, cause you're not always right, you know, with, with these hypotheses. So I like this. I like this summary. Thank you for being willing to go uh, long today. I feel like we could go another hour. So maybe we'll have to have you back at some point if you'd be willing. But um, this has been awesome. Thank you for coming on the show, Benjamin. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening. If you found this episode valuable, check out our other episodes or subscribe to get new ones. If you want to support the show, we'd love for you to leave a review or share it with someone. And if you want a tool to help you track and improve your business performance, try Databox free at databox.com.